What's that number you do? That really huge one. How does it go? Uh, da, 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 something. And in the stage act, it ends with this ship crashing right into the sun. Oh, and you actually do it. I mean, ship, sun, bang. Biggest, the loudest, the richest rock band in the history of history itself. Hi again, everybody, and welcome to the IMMP podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And I've made him, well, I've made him watch a television series, but I can't say that this edition of the IMMP podcast is just about a television series. It's also kind of a book episode. Right. And a radio play episode. And, and a movie episode. And an LP audio drama episode it's it's about a an idea a thing that has been released in, into the world in a number of different formats but across all of these different formats it has had a a huge and unique impact on my life had a huge and unique impact on my youth and it's in, ha- it's had an impact on mine as well but in some ways more from the echoes of its impact than from its original impact, I think. I think that's right, both both in terms of the, your family and in terms of the culture. What we're talking about is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, it we, send, it, the, the name sends shivers down my spine now already. <laughs> we watched, thanks to Amazon Prime, the 1981 BBC six-episode TV series version of this. And because that was available, we noticed it. We thought, oh, that's that's something we were going to have to talk about. So let's let's watch that. But that isn't the first way that I encountered it. And I encountered it in so many different uh, forms over the years in those early 80s, uh, that early 80s time frame. I first encountered this in the form of the novels which were, again, not its first form. It started life as a BBC radio play, radio series. It started life as that? That was the original versions were the radio series that uh, Douglas Adams wrote. And that radio series became extremely popular and led to the novels. It also, the script for that radio series, read to Doug- led to Douglas Adams being a script editor for Doctor Who for several years in the late 70s. And then in the early 80s or very late 70s, the novels came along and the TV series came along in 1981. And the first few episodes of the radio series became an LP that was making the rounds of me and my friends in uh, when we were in our high school. So it just it was this medium in which the, the our, our culture as suburban nerds was just totally steeped for a year or more. And I encountered the the book, found it in the science fiction section of the library and devoured it in an afternoon. Uh wrote a letter to my brother, your uncle Jim, who was uh, in college at the time, so that makes me in 8th grade, and I wrote him a letter. This was back when we would fell trees with stone axes to turn them into stamps and envelopes. And about a week later, he calls home as he did every week or so. And talks to my mom for a bit, and my mom says, oh, Jim has something he wants to uh, tell you. I said, oh, that sounds cool. Uh, I wonder if he got my letter. I pick up the phone, and he says, don't panic. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, simultaneously with me discovering these, he, he and his friends in college were discovering them and reading them and waiting for the next books to come out and et cetera. So... It it again it it shows how fast and big an impact this had, and he eventually got the big chunks of the radio series on cassette. We wound up listening to those on road trips, so I got to hear a lot of the the radio series. And then, like I said, we had the LP and this um, this TV series. So there were there were a lot of ways in which this could invade one's consciousness and affect one's view of the universe 
that that is such an interesting parallel because I know of it. I know of it from the books first as well, but it's because of your copies sitting on the shelves. <laughs> and I can definitely see like this is this is one of those things where you search it up and you you cannot Google this without adding modifiers to find what you want because there's so many versions about about there. But I remember seeing this book on the shelf with this picture of this little green ball with arms sticking its tongue out, being honestly horrified. It stuck in my mind as this creepy thing, and it would haunt me for a little while, actually. And then sometime around 2005, when the movie version of Hitchhiker's Guide came out then, I was getting aware of like, oh, all these little references I know are all from this one thing. 42 and the and this big computer called Deep Thought and Towel being important for space and things like that, which would be these little references people would put in the background of their stories or their media bit. I'd only seen the the echo, the re the the Easter egg reference. So when we went out to see that Disney movie version, you had not yet read the books? No. But you knew of them because they were horrifying you from my bookshelf. Absolutely. And then sometime less than a year after that, I wound up getting very sick. And I was in bed, like, this was a, I can't go to middle school sick. And I asked to read it. And of all the times to try to read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, running a fever is not a good time to. Or maybe the best no, time. I think that's probably a really good time I to. can't tell what, <laughs> but I devoured the books then. And I saw it as this, finally, all of these references are linked by this movie and the books happening around that same time. And suddenly it's like, I get to be part of the club of knowing what's going on now. And it went from this little icon that I was really disturbed by to, oh, yeah, it's that little icon. That means this <laughs> thing I like. Well, that's cool. It rehabilitated that little mocking planet guy on the cover of some of the American book editions. I don't know why he is on those book editions, though. I I am not sure why the little planet with its arms and it's sticking its tongue out at you. It's it's hard to know. Is that the appropriate image or is it now just so connected that it, it must be the image for Hitchhiker's Guide? If you told me this was the cover for the Langoliers, I would believe you more in a weird way. <laughs> yeah, I think you've got a point there. But the story itself is a hard one to really talk about narratively because it has points. But the fact that it's lived in so many forms means that you either have to talk about one specifically or you have to talk about the, the vague probability cloud that happens to follow a similar wavelength. I think we can talk about the the general setup, and then maybe some of the ideas and characters, rather than try, futilely, to go through the whole narrative, because it's very picaresque, it wanders all over the place, but we're following this one character, this person from Earth, and I say this one person from Earth because the, at the very beginning of the story, Earth is destroyed to make way for a hyperspace bypass so it is blown up by the Vogon constructor fleet or destructor fleet. I think it may get different names in different versions of this. That's another thing that's hard to keep track of. The story outline overall is the same between the TV series and the books and the radio play and... The point-and-click adventure game? Yeah, yeah, the text adventure game from Infocom. That's right. That was another. That was a very influential version of that. Mm hmm. But the details do change depending on the format. <laughs> but they all begin with Earth being destroyed by the Vogons and Arthur Dent being the one human who survives because the person who's been his best friend for five years isn't actually a journalist from Guilford. He's more a journalist from somewhere near the star Beetlejuice because he is a, a field researcher or the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and he's been stranded on earth for five years and he manages to hitch a ride off of earth with some of the 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 people who are working below decks in the vogon constructor fleet just at the time that they show up to destroy the earth and that gives us our first two characters being 
Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect as these two kind of base. I almost want to say that they are two sides to humanity's representation in the or the rest of the series, because Arthur Dent becomes the basic everyman quintessentially because there is no other man to be he is every man <laughs> yes the average well it seems at first the average living human being is precisely arthur dent because he's the only one left exactly and that's the sort of math the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy would love to point out <laughs> to you yes the every version i've ever seen of it uses the hitchhiker's guide the in-universe book as the narrative connective explanation thread between all of the rest of the adventures in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the the literary ma- multimedia quantum state of a story. The the book itself and the passages from the book are are a character and are a big part of driving the narrative. In the TV series, and I think in many of the other versions, it's voiced by Peter Jones. And he just has this perfect un- it's the kind of authority that doesn't have to assert itself because it just knows that you nobody would question its authority. It's the book. Stephen Fry played the the book in the 2005, and he did a good job too. That was good casting for that as mm-hmm. well. But that tell if, if you don't know the original voice, but you can know Stephen Fry's, you can also get that same car, kind of you know steady authority explaining to you what. Yes. And, that, and that, here's another amusing detail you might be interested to know. Exactly. And it's very, very good. But and I guess that means we've got three characters. We've got the we've got the guide, we've got Arthur Dent, and we've got Ford Prefect. And if Arthur is the everyman responding to what's going on, Ford Prefect is the observer who was there to record everything, but is by the fact that he chose the name Ford Prefect alone shown to be an imperfect observer he's he's figured out that that must be of an extremely typical earth name it fits him somehow i don't think we ever learn what his real name was except that it would be impossible for humans to pronounce yeah it it is hand waved in a very clear way and it doesn't even come up in some of the versions that's one of those points that doesn't have to be hit but it, the fact that we get here is an an authoritative source of information that doesn't stay consistent. Here is an observer who is not detached from what they're observing in such a way that it doesn't change or affect what they're observing when they look at it. And here's a man out of place and responding to everything. They are all three reactions to what's going on. And, and that helps drive the story. And Ford Prefect is more than just an observer, though. That was his job, to observe what was going on on Earth and write a new entry for the updated Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But he is also the character with street smarts. He knows how to hitch a ride with the catering crew on a Vogan um, construction ship. He knows how to survive uh, a hyperspace jump with nothing but a towel when you are in the uh, uh, cargo hold. It's like Arthur Dent has two sources of information, each of which serve him in different ways. He's got the ostensibly authoritative fount of information that is the Hitchhiker's Guide, and he's got this street-smart guide with him in the form of Ford Prefect. And between the two of them, he can manage to survive if he knows which one to listen to and which one to ignore at the appropriate times. In some ways, at this point, you now have what you need to start this adventure. The fact that the story has regular points it hits from there on isn't needed to get the feeling of what the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is, because that right there to start out is a perfect setup. We watched the TV show, so I'm going to reference back to it as our, our, our linchpin if we have to settle onto one narrative of this for right now. But the way they show it in the show is an excellent example of this. I, I need this. Give me this. Gather my supplies. Take the money. It's not going to be needed. We're all, the, the planet's blowing up in 15 minutes. Here, my friend, drink these. You'll need, you'll need them for the trip grab a ride 
and Arthur Dent is just dragged along still in his bathrobe. Yeah, he is not a protagonist with any agency at all at the beginning of the story. Mm -hmm. He's literally dragged along and sometimes kicking and screaming into his own survival. But that immediately, like, this um, this disorientation and this... I, I, I described things last episode as off-kilter, and this one is another, like, off-kilter. It's turn the world and see it from a different angle, kind of. You know, when, once you move a step to the left of what you know, everything's thrown into a different perspective. And you're not ready for that. And that's, I think, the key to The Hitchhiker's Guide and the key to Douglas Adams' style of humor which is just examining something extremely familiar from a very different angle than usual and commenting on it. Mm-hmm. Because every little, because definitely the Hitchhiker's Guide falls into a Planet of Hats scenario where there is a thing to a place in some, or a few, a few things of what you might know in a place turned up to 11 everywhere else in the galaxy. But the fact that they're turned up to 11 is just to show you the contrast and the the new perspective on whatever it's commentating on in this moment. Right. And that's most of what you get throughout this is just more and more layers of this to show you how big and how weird this greater universe that Arthur Dent now finds himself wandering has become. The journey then usually continues into escaping the Vogon fleet, uh, getting your Babel fish, of course. And finding your way onto the ship with the Zephod Beeblebrox. The Heart of Gold. The Heart of Gold. Because they're, they're thrown out into the void of space to die by the Vogons who find them and, as, uh, as stowaways. But they are instantly picked up by the Heart of Gold and its infinite improbability drive, which traverses every point in the universe at the same time while it's getting from one place to another. And they're picked up by Zephod Beeblebrox, the two-headed, three-armed president of the galaxy, who stole the ship when he was supposed to be um, christening it, and Trillian, who is also from Earth. She's a woman from Earth. Arthur Dent actually met her at a party once and also met Zephod Beeblebrox at the same party. Zaphod Beeblebrox took away uh, Trillian's attention while uh, Arthur was trying to chat her up. And those two are now another pair of quintessential archetypes, because Trillian is smart. She is a scientist. Yes, yeah, she's got advanced degrees in mathematics and, and astrophysics, which means that back on Earth, she was on unemployment. <laughs> and now she's out in the universe piloting spaceships. And she's been out here long enough that I never even thought of her as an Earthling in that sense. But she does then represent this, you know... Science and logic applied to what's going on, which doesn't always work. Now when she, it does, it succeeds wonderfully, but it doesn't always work. And she's the Earthling who was introduced to this wider universe in a different way and grabbed onto it and charged into it, as opposed to someone who was dragged into this wider universe rather than staying behind and getting blown up with the rest of his planet. So two very different responses to, oh, the universe is a lot bigger than we knew. And then there's Zaphod, who honestly <laughs> changes too much between versions in some ways. Yeah, I mean, he he changes the most in the, the Sam Rockwell portrayal in the Disney movie. He's more similar from the books to the radio play to the TV series, I think. Mm -hmm. And the TV series version was a fun character, but intentionally grating he's supposed to be a guy who gets on your nerves i think right he is totally ego driven totally what's going to be fun and fantastic in the moment and he's fine if you want to follow along as long as you're not going to be a drag about it as long as you're going to have fun with him and that that's his his motivations are right there if if the other three characters become bewilderment observation and gumption or analysis of what's going on Zaphod is almost this relaxed slightly hedonistic nihilism the more the world's messed up and going to happen but i'm gonna have a fun ride on my way kind of right whether that's inventing a a drink that's so cool and uh 
and powerful that you need uh, recovery help afterward and therapy or stealing the coolest spaceship he's ever seen. He's just going to go with it. That also makes it kind of the, you know, we've got an analytical side. We've got an id. <laughs> we've got an ego. We, we, they, they become a little mind, a little a little microcosm in terms of oh, an like approach because it, it becomes this little group observing the universe. And you go on the trip with them. And oh, we're, we're forgetting one character, of course. And then he'd be sad that we're forgetting him, but that's his default state. There's, of course, the robot on the Heart of Gold. Marvin. Marvin, yes. The depressed robot. The, the, the robot with the brain the size of a planet who's asked to do things like fetch prisoners and park cars and, uh, and help steal spaceships and things that are totally beneath him, but he's resigned to his fate. Which is just kind of sadness in the face of the universe. It's too big. I give up. You don't have to pretend to be interested in me, you know. I know perfectly well I'm only a menial robot. But they become this little unit, bouncing the weird ideas that are then thrown at them from version to version, and each processing them, and you get to see how each of them respond. Arthur Dent usually is our focus character, and is responding with bewilderment. But if you watch how each of the other characters are responding, you get an interpretation of each event going on. And I love that of this. It is a great group dynamic in that sense. Now, Arthur Dent was always the, uh, he is by definition the, the audience surrogate character. He is the earthling who's suddenly thrown into this, just as we are as listeners or viewers or readers. But he, and like I say, he starts out with practically no agency, although that changes throughout the, the whole long saga. I think it got up to Five or six books uh, by the end of it, and sadly, uh, Douglas Adams has been dead for quite a number of years now. But as a as a kid and as a teenager, I never really identified with Arthur Dent much. Hmm. I a, a little bit identified or wanted to identify with Zaphod Beeblebrox, although that is something that's very easy to outgrow. Much more identified with Ford Prefect. Somebody who had a reason to be in this weird situation, but who was driven by this combination of professional curiosity and survival. Oh, I, f I can see what you're describing there, and I'm so intrigued because the character I always related to in the stories was also not Arthur Dan. But I, I, I don't think you'd expect who I related to. I related to the guide. Oh, I can get that. The, 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 the character who, in terms of a personality, and it does have a personality, would sit there and tell you what this is, but tell you this side fact that doesn't seem important until you realize, oh, that's what the entirety of this thing it's describing pivoted on. The thing that didn't seem important became the downfall or the success or the strange survival or the thing you actually do need to know about whatever this is. And it's willing to tell you that because it takes the time to look and say, oh, it's that other thing. It, it, it'll tell you about the fact that the editors of this other thing were fools. And then it'll back up the fact that, and here's a thing from the future that proved, yeah, they were fools. And I'm like, oh, you're pointing that out, not just out of oh. thing, because it's the linchpin of how this is remembered in history. It's 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 that analysis machine, and I love that. I like that, and I can see that. That makes sense to me, and it and it does this with such a steady, calm voice of unquestioned authority that it doesn't shine a light on what part of its long, weird commentary is the important part. You get to discover that later. I, I want to be that calm and that informed us to the <laughs> obtuse thing that's important. I love that. Oh, I wanted to be the guy who knew where the Babelfish were and why you needed one and the guy who knew where his towel was. Together, we, we go on a fine adventure. <laughs> and there is an overall storyline throughout this that is followed. And it's it's a really interesting one. I don't want to give away more of it than we have to, because in some ways you don't have to give away much to talk about what really is captivating about the series. But I just don't want it to sound as if it's just these characters bouncing around like pinballs through 
trivial storylines or trivial situations. There is a storyline and it's powerful and it is important and it really does give a sense of narrative momentum to the whole thing. But it still is assembled out of these set pieces of delightful weirdness that we find our characters getting themselves into and having to get themselves out of. Our characters wind up facing the issues of the the nature of the Earth now that it is gone, that its story is in some way ended. They get to deal with the concept of endings in general. They get to deal with the concepts of the impact you might have on the development of things and how things will change. They get to, later on in the books, deal with the impact of who else winds up impacted by your quest that is not you and did not go on the quest. If if you come back changed, who else was changed by your change? They They deal with all these narrative things as you go through the story, and each of those is poignant and interesting, and it happens in an order. It it definitely does, and you're right. There's this theme of interconnectedness that, yeah, the universe seem, is really big and things seem very far apart, and the very nature of the, sh- the series is we've got a protagonist who knew nothing about the universe, an infinitesimal fraction of what the universe is, and yet he's connected to all of it, like everyone is connected to all of it. So that's definitely a theme through the whole thing. You want to pull a bit of a meta. We watched the TV show version for this to refresh ourselves on the story. And because it's a version I hadn't seen before, but dad, you'd seen it as one of the the ways you'd interacted with this story in the past, if I understand. Right. I was reading the books as they came out. And I suppose there were two or maybe three of the books had come out when the this 1981 BBC TV series was uh, rebroadcast in the U.S. on PBS. And uh, so I saw it over the course of six weeks. So, you know, sometime in the early 80s when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And this is, this version of it is interconnected. We talked about, it's got some, it's got interactions with uh, Doctor Who, based on Douglas Adam having written for Doctor Who, but also I think some of the production crew, I think. I, some yeah, the, I think so. Yeah, the BBC production yeah, was part, overlap there. was overlapped. Uh, and this one is the one that I see referenced so much. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is one of those those core reference pieces that has inspired so many other creators over time that you'll find references. But the the look and the style and the designs they use in this version of the story are versions I've seen referenced elsewhere. I've seen versions of the head of this copy of Marvin elsewhere in media. I've seen this bathrobe and towel elsewhere and that becomes a reference to a version and to a story but it also reconnects everything that makes reference to it back to hitchhiker's guide and that's one of those you know we're talking about everything being connected this one is one of those easy to connect versions and it's i'm glad i watched this because if i noticed the things before i'm noticing them stronger now having seen which one it's referencing And there's something about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in general, but the TV series in particular. Yes, you watch it and it's it's dated. You know that this is not a current, contemporary, cutting-edge thing. And yet, it's not dated in a way that lets you peg it to a very particular era. It's not like you listen to the radio play and think, oh, this is so late 70s, or you... Uh, you watch the TV series and say, oh, this was obviously made in 1981. Let's look at what they're wearing. It's dated in a way that it's very hard to peg, and it makes it almost timeless. There's 60s-style elements and very 80s-style elements, lots of 70s-style elements, some stuff going back to earlier space opera Flash Gordon-type stuff. It's this interesting mix that all of the elements, of course, come from Earth in some way. It's what the designers had and were influenced by. But it makes the universe seem like a something far bigger in which Earth was this barely noticeable speck. Because you can't say, oh, this everything in here, obviously it was from 1981 Earth. Yeah, there is something timeless because of the way it goes. And it, I've seen so many shows that are bad at being able to give anywhere else a timeline that doesn't feel directly copied to Earth. The Hitchhiker's Guide 
doesn't tie itself back to Earth because it implies that Earth is this mirror of everything else in the universe instead of vice versa. And there's something that you, you can see throughout The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in all of its various forms. In some ways, it shows up in the sharpest relief, I think, in the TV version, but it shows up very well in the rest of them. And that is that the idea of scale is so extremely important in every part of its commentary, every part of its narrative. Sometimes that scale is about space. At least as often, that scale is about time. Mm. And it's, it, it introduces this idea where Arthur Dent's house is going to be knocked down by a bulldozer because a freeway bypass or a motorway bypass has to be built. And that same day, space bulldozers show up and they have to destroy the Earth because a hyperspace bypass has to be built. Same thing, different scales. One of them inconveniences one person, the rest, the other one kills several billion. But they're the same thing, just at very different scales. And they even talk. The, the Hitchhiker's Guide has this great speech about how big space is. And that's one of the things, is the fact that Arthur Dent goes from being somebody who lives in a little house, in a little village, in a little country, in this little insignificant planet, to discovering this enormous universe that he now has to travel through. In the same way, there are so many things in this story about time scales, where it's, you know, how long... First, you start off with the fact that, that Ord Prefect has been stuck on Earth for five years. Then you ta- learn that, you know, the, the, the planning documents for the destruction of Earth have been on file at your local planning office at Alpha Centauri for decades. And eventually... The story is talking about things that take place over hundreds of millions of years, and it all still kind of makes sense and seems natural. And there's this corporation-slash-civilization that's been in hibernation for hundreds of millions of years, waiting for the galactic economy to to reemerge so that it can afford their services. And you start... Every once in a while, I'll step back and I'll I'll realize the insanely enormous timescales they're talking about. And yet, yeah, okay, I guess it makes sense. And it'll also deal with the tiniest things going in the opposite direction. It will deal with five minutes missing from the end of, uh, of from the end of the world. It will deal with mice. It will deal with attack fleets smaller than a dog. <laughs> it will deal with the tiny things because the scale is a matter of perspective and the things that are giant for one are tiny for the other and vice versa. And that is so intriguing and important because by the end, you can't actually put anything in comparison to the other. No apple and no orange can be compared because who can even describe what an apple is at this point? Right. And why do you, and why are you worried about that? And that's so delightfully disorienting to us as readers or as audience, and so terrifyingly disorienting for Arthur Dent to be thrown into this huge mix of scales of space and time that he had never even conceived of. And yet, through following the story, we begin to get comfortable with it. And by living this story, Arthur Dent begins to get comfortable with it. And you're right, you can't just take things as they are, you've always got to stop and think, okay, where am I? What's my perspective on this? What's, what is the scale of space and time in which we are working? Okay, now I know what has to be done and how to assess things and how to make judgment calls. And it's, it's very relativistic in that way. But it's, it's really it's interesting to kind of notice that happening to your own perceptions as you read these or as you watch these. And I think that that, like I say, this... My my friends and I were at very impressionable ages when we were steeped in this. I really, really do think that had a lasting impact on how we view the world, how we view our place in it, how we choose to interact with it in different ways at different places and times. It is a powerful piece, no matter what. And that's one of the things you described, the fact that it has this, uh, it, it has this message about 
perspective on that. It has this message on the, the viewing of what you're looking at as a whole. And that's one of those things I want to bring up that there's so many versions of this that when I first learned of it, I came into the middle of a fight about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, really? I came in and when I was first trying to learn about it, I asked around, I looked it up, and I found arguments happening. Because some people had seen a version or read the books or listened to a version of it and were saying that the new version or a different version was wrong because there were changes, because there were those discrepancies you're describing about, because the narrative decided to end at a point in where it was for what it was. And they were saying that there is a quintessential version of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There's one to follow. And that seems to be not what the Hitchhiker's Guide is telling you. If the story itself is about, I mean, one of the items in it is the, is the improbability drive. One of my favorite sci-fi inventions in all of fiction. I love this device. It is the most brilliant way of getting from point A to point B. And it's by going through every other point in existence and deciding where you want to land. Right. I love that. How improbable is it for you to be where you want to be? As long as you can figure that out, you can be there. Mm-hmm. I love that. And the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy changed, not just because it was made in different forms that required... I mean, the TV show ends at a point. It has a final episode, and that is how far it goes in its story. The movies, the movie took a different point and made that its ending. And... Different versions will go on for longer, they'll add stuff to, and he was adding stuff and changing stuff. Yeah, there were six different series, six series of the radio play. There were six books, and again, they don't necessarily map to one another. There were people arguing over which was the real and true and correct version of Hitchhiker's Guide. Absolutely. If if the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the reference book, has an entry for missing the point... It would have that online conversation excerpted as the best example of missing the point in the known universe. The whole, everything about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is about there is no one correct canonical point of view. And every story has different versions of itself. And it's a meta example of what the story is about. Mm-hmm. And if you were to overlay somehow every version of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on top of each other and see this, this you know, waveform of all the different versions of this same story following slightly different versions of this path, going off in different places, but always coming back to this, this story about what you're about perspective and seeing things, you'd get a picture then, but the fact that each of those is a line you can trace means it has a different part of the story to tell you, a different part of the message to get. And sometimes you need that other perspective on the story of perspective to help get perspective. Absolutely. I, and I can absolutely see, having the opinion, this version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is the one that I enjoy most or the one from which I derive the most value compared to the others. And I can understand having discussions where you can say, oh, this is why I find the most enjoyment of value from this version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy versus that. But to argue that you're, that therefore the one in which you find the most enjoyment or value is the correct one, and someone who has a different take and finds more value and enjoyment from a different version of it is wrong, that's just insane. It's, it, it's wacky. I mean, it was intriguing to see this happen because it did color how I approached it. But in some weird way, I'm glad because it meant that I had to step back and wonder what's going on in this that gets people this riled up and learning more about it. I was able to enjoy it knowing the fact that there are other versions out there and that I can. There's a lot of media that you come back to and you can't come back to it the first time. Hitchhiker's Guide, I've always found that there's a new first time for me to experience it, and I've loved that. Oh, that's an interesting idea. I I definitely feel like it's something where there's no experience that is comparable to encountering it for the first time. 
but that's probably as much to do with when and where and how I first encountered it than anything about the material itself. You described it that you're being steeped in it for a year. You you absorbed a lot of hitchhikers within that one bit of time. Then. Right. And being at that age and being ready to be shown new ways of looking at the universe, that's a big part of it as well. I've been fed a steady portion on a a, a clock since middle school up to now of of interactions with this, coming back to it, leaving to see it sprinkled in the roots of all of these other things I enjoy and then coming to a new one and enjoying it again and leaving to see where it is in the world and maybe finding references to one of those versions, but a lot of the time finding references to the idea of the Hitchhiker's Guide in general and then, you know, repeating that pattern. And this has been another step into a version of Hitchhikers for me to see this TV series and say, oh, I've seen the references to this one. But it's another instance of the thing that everything references. And I will run into so many games that give you a bonus for 42 or (laughs) who will put in an item in the background that you can't maybe you can't even interact with. But it's a piece of decoration because it's a reference now. And that's so much fun. And that's that's part of what this is to me then. And the fact that you were raised by parents who both of us were to greater or lesser degrees influenced by this as we were uh, as we were growing up is going to mean that you've got a different starting point and you are going to uh, experience it in a different way than I did not being raised by such parents and and you know because it didn't exist yet and encountering it as this new thing at that time in my life and in some ways the the fights that I interacted with couldn't have happened back when it was coming out for you because it was new the moment it got some time on it, people got stuck on versions of it, and that's where that comes through. But uh, this this podcast itself, to get meta on the podcast, is about our interactions with media. And this one had an impact and a ripple, and you were at the impact and I was at the ripples. And <laughs> that, that means that our perspectives are colored in that way, but... The fact that we were both able to come to a similar response is good. It is. It is. So this kind of makes our usual wrap-up questions very, very meta and different. The first question is usually, I guess for a TV series, binge or no binge? And for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in general, I guess this applies so what do you think? Are you recommending this? I recommend I recommend the TV show. It was honestly a very good version. We didn't talk about it a lot specifically here, but it was a good version of Hitchhiker's Guide. And if you had not interacted with it before and you don't want to read the book, I like this version. It's a fun one. Any version is a fine way to interact with it. But if you're not sure what, where to start, I'd say go t- give this a shot. I would definitely say that. I would also say read the books. That was the first way I encountered it before I knew it was a radio show, before the TV series came along. Every time I'm tempted to say, well, no, this is the best best version to start with, or this is, if you're only going to read one, Not I'm not saying one is better than the others. One is the official, one is the the best and the correct. But if you're only going to experience one, here's the one you should go with. Every time I try to answer that question, I then think, oh, but this other version has this other interesting take, and you'd miss that if you only watched the TV show, or if you only read the books, you'd miss this really cool scene and the way this thing was portrayed in the TV show, or there's this scene that shows up in season two of the radio plays that really isn't well depicted anywhere else. It's really, really hard, if not impossible, to pick one over the others. So that being said, Whichever one appeals to you because of its medium, and whichever one is available to you, start there. And if if it if it gets into you, then find the other versions of it. And uh, because every single one of them has something different of value to add. So yeah, I absolutely recommend it, and I recommend start wherever makes sense for you to start. So, you know. My choice wouldn't be to start with the 2005 Disney movie, but I'm not going to say that anybody else is wrong to do so. It's where I started. It's the first interaction. It's the first version I saw. Yeah. 
and I have gone and seen other things and I've, I, I still hold a place for that version in my heart and I enjoy the other ones just as much because it's still a version of Hitchhikers. That's great. So our next question, revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Again, a strangely complicated question given the nature of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and its, its meta existence. I'd say reboot. I think that this is, as we're describing here, Hitchhikers is a a quantum wave form of a story that keeps collapsing into new, different media states over the course of history. And I feel like that's almost a way to keep things... It, it, as long as there is a form of media, I want there to be a form of Hitchhikers on it. Not because Hitchhikers has to be there, but because it says something when you have to take this and apply it to that. And if uh, Hitchhikers becomes a an analysis wrench for everything and for wherever it is. And so I want them to keep using this tool because it's good and it says something. And the more versions that are out there, the more new versions of Hitchhikers you can interact with and get a new perspective again. And the more first time interacting with it in some form you can have. So I there's talk that there's talk that various different streaming services are looking to make a streaming show of it. I would love to see Hitchhikers made into a VR PC game. Just throw it into things. I want to see it places. So I'm saying reboot because the engine I want to keep it rolling. I I have I absolutely agree. Reboot partly because Hitchhiker's, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is never done being booted. It is always constantly in a state of booting. It Perpetual boot. It's, its very nature is to be reimagined and recreated and to persist in all different media. There is a part of me that recognizes or concludes or believes that there's a, there was a certain purity in the versions that Douglas Adams was alive to contribute to and guide because nobody could adapt his sense of humor from one medium to another the way he could. And he could take this same property, these same ideas, the same perspective on the universe and bring it from radio play to TV show to text adventure to books to all in all these different ways. And he had the confidence in what he was saying to be free to change things. It didn't make sense to throw into a text adventure, everything that was in a book or everything into a TV show that was in a book or describe in a book, everything that was mentioned in a, uh, a radio play and others are not able to do it with quite as much confidence necessarily, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't keep doing it because I think that's the nature of hitchhiker's guide. As long as the right people are doing it for the right reasons, give me as many versions as you can every single generation. And you're right, 2021, Hulu is supposed to be releasing a new multi-part TV adaptation of it. So I'm looking forward to that. That is excellent. I, I want to actually do something odd. I want to throw an extra R onto our uh, our list here as well. Oh, so we've got Revive, Reboot, Rest in Peace, or? Reference. <laughs> I mentioned how I kept on running into Hitchhiker's references everywhere, and I want to point out that in the idea of rebooting it, I I like that fact. It is a a breadcrumbs and a nod to a wonderful piece of media, and just throwing 42 into something for no good reason, I don't like. But if you're going, if you are making something and this did influence you, putting 42 in the background somewhere when you have to put a number, is nice. Having that that towel hanging on the rack there as a reference to kind of signal, I've, I'm hoping that it can be one of those things where it's not just pop culture for pop culture's sake, but it can be a form of signaling that you are able to take a step back and analyze what you're making and what you're doing. Because Hitchhikers was constantly doing that to everything itself included. And I hope that that's a lesson that can be learned and looked at, and the reference can then be a a nod to what that can teach you. And so I'm I'm suggesting reference because if it did impact you, help other people find it to impact them and acknowledge that it did. 
I like that. I think that's important. And you can really, I think you can tell when something like that is being used just as a reference for reference sake or a coolness indicator, and when it is being used really as a fond homage and acknowledgement to something that was important to that other creator. So yeah, it's it's fun to see those when they're done in the right ways and for the right reasons. And I think we'll we'll continue seeing those kind of references for a long time. But no one who shows up at Comic Con with a towel over their shoulder will ever it will, will ever be ignored, in my opinion. They will always be at least given a given a fond nod, I think. Well, I hope so. And I hope that uh, you've enjoyed this uh, this talk about this uh, property that was um, was really important to both of us in in different ways. So thank you for for listening. Thank you for downloading. And we will be back in uh, a couple of weeks with more tales of media from the twentieth century or from 500 million years in the future. You never know. But in the meantime, Ian, where can people find you? As long as the Earth's still around, I'll be found on Twitter at itemcrafting, on YouTube as itemcrafting, and on Twitch as itemcraftinglive. And you can find me at the website matthewfporter.com or on Twitter at bymatthewporter. And you can find the podcast at our website immproject.com, and there you will find not only all of our back episodes, and links to subscribe if you haven't subscribed already, but you'll also find links to our contact page, to our Discord, to our Patreon, and we uh, thank you for uh, everyone who's helping uh, support and keep the show going. Links to our shop, and you can also find the podcast on Twitter at IMMPCast. Mm-hmm. So please let us know what version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy you find the most value and enjoyment in and and why we're really curious if you try to tell us which ones are true and accurate and correct we won't like that quite as much and if you haven't interacted with a version of it and you see someone else suggesting one in the discussion it's a fine time to to re-interact with it on a never a different version i i've not i've not listened to the radio play and i'm looking forward to coming back and doing that sometime soon so hey great well thanks again and uh, we'll be back soon and until then Go find something new to watch.